as uh, Woody said, we're diving into this um, passage or this kind of part of John's gospel. We're in the second half of it because we did the first half last year, and so we're kind of diving straight into it. But let me, first of all, you know, kind of look at why this is important. The whole issue that's on the table here is about blindness, but not just physical blindness. It's all an extended metaphor for blindness in a spiritual way or in a sense of really not seeing what is going on. And that's important because when you reflect on the nature of the claims of Jesus Christ, which is something we're trying to do here in the context of work, sooner or later, when you think about the size of those claims, think about the significance of those claims, think about the testimony that goes alongside those claims, you have to ask the question, which is, why is it that some people believe and other people don't? Now, please hear me. I don't just think this is a purely religious or theological question. Sociologists are grappling with this, um, whether they're Christian or not, because largely speaking, you have the Western part of the world that for centuries was the kind of main locus of Christian belief, um, now turning away from Christianity. And you have the global south and other majority parts of the world where you have an explosion of recent belief in Jesus Christ. Why is it that one society is turning away? And in huge sways, other parts of the world, the majority parts of the world, are turning to Christianity. How do you account for that, those regional variations? What's really behind that? Um, or think about it more from first principles. I don't know where you're coming from. We always have a range of people here, from people with no experience of Christianity and religion to those who've been following Jesus Christ for a number of years. But here are some of the claims that Christianity and Scripture itself makes. Um, and, you know, ones which I suppose are, you know, can be backed up by a testimony of history. It claims that Jesus is the center point of history. And if you think about the way we do dates, that's pretty, you know, I suppose uncontroversial to at least say he's going to be right up there with one of the center points of history. Certainly, Scripture is the most read book of all time. That's um, beyond dispute. The largest people group on the face of the earth, certainly by conviction, is the church, the believers in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ claims he himself is God in human form, and that what he does changes everybody, depending on how they respond to it. Now, if you just take the ma magnitude of those claims, then you have to grapple with the question, which is, if it's so obvious, and if Jesus is so prominent, and if Scripture is so prevalent, and if belief in him in the world is so big, why don't more people believe? And why in the West are we turning away from it? I mean, that's at least got to be just a thinking person's question. Now, that might seem a bit abstract, so let me make it more personal. Maybe for you, you're here, and you've been looking at Scripture, you know, the Bible, talking to Christians for a while, but you wouldn't call yourself a believer. And maybe you've said things like, I would love to have your belief, I just can't. It just doesn't seem to be something for me. I, I have a lot of people I talk to who say that. Uh, maybe you're a Christian, and you're talking to colleagues or family members you would love to see come to know Jesus Christ and to share in what you've got. But there just seems... Well, to use the language of the pasture, blindness there, and you don't know what's causing that and how you deal with that. How do you deal with that? How do you explain it? And how do you change it? These are core questions. And John 9 is written all about that as we engage with this remarkable miracle of a man who has his sight healed, having been born blind. Uh, we'll see that this is not just about the miracle, but actually about more than that, particularly if you just flick forward and look at page 1076 and verse 39. So Jesus' own commentary on the miracle makes it clear this is about more than just the physical miracle. Verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I've come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Now, we have no examples of Jesus doing a miracle of turning anyone physically blind. So he's clearly talking in metaphorical terms there. 
And what he's talking about is in the passage, we get into this extended debate between the man who can now see after the miracle, the man born blind, and the Pharisees. And in the views of the day, the the Pharisees should have been the ones with spiritual sight, but we see they're the ones who are really spiritually blind. And the man was the one that everyone would think would be the one who was spiritually blind, but he's the one who sees with most lucidity and clarity. So it's really about the paradox going on there. What's behind that? Well, so much for introduction. Let me just frame this a little bit so you get your bearings in John's gospel, because you probably come from busy meetings about busy things, and you'll probably you know, need a bit of um, bearings. So John's gospel is all about life and the claim that Jesus offers life to all who believe in him. You don't need to look it up, but John 20, 31, these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that is the Christ, the promised one of God, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John writes to persuade people that that is the reality, that in Jesus Christ is life, not just physical life, but ah, this is the life, this is what life's about, a life connected with God that starts now And if you trust in him, carries on for eternity and just gets better and better. And in the context of the chapters immediately preceding this, Jesus has done some incredible miracles and made some astonishing claims. So he feeds 5,000 people and then he walks across water, um, something which is obviously remarkable. But he does it because he's picking up language from the Exodus. The Jews celebrated a festival called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tents where they would camp out for a week or two and celebrate and remember the Exodus where God called them out of Egypt. And the three great symbols of that um, episode in Exodus and of the festival were bread, water, and light. Bread because God fed his people miraculously in the desert with manna, with bread from heaven. Uh, Water because God took them across the Red Sea and fed them with water from the rock. And light because God led them by a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of a cloud by day. Three great symbols. So when Jesus feeds 5,000 people and when he walks across water, you can see what he's doing, whether you believe he did it or not. That's his claim. And he claims to be the bread of life, chapter 6. He claims to be living water, chapter 7. And he claims to be the light of the world, chapter 8. So in other words, he's saying all the things that God did in the Old Testament, this great episode of Exodus, I am doing now. I am the fulfillment. I am God himself. And just to make it really clear, he makes the most astonishing claim at all in chapter 8, verse 58. Just look at it at the top of our passage. Chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, Before Abraham was born, I am. And if you know anything about the Exodus, you'll know that in the Old Testament, God said his name was I am. I am who I am. So Jesus is making a clear claim to divinity, which is why the Pharisees get so incensed. Verse 59, they picked up stones to stone him because blasphemy is illegal, and the penalty for it is death, and Jesus slipped away from the temple grounds. So he's made clear claims to be God himself. He's not hiding it. And the very people who should believe the Pharisees don't believe. And then we come into this whole passage about the man born blind. See how John is structuring his material? Why don't people believe? How can belief come about? Well, let's look at chapter 9. We're going to look at this in three stages, the sign, the analysis, and the solution. Let's look first of all at the miracle or the sign, as John calls it, like a sign because the miracle is to point to a greater reality. The sign, sight given to a man born blind. Chapter 9, verse 1. As he went along, Jesus saw a man blind from birth, His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This question in verse 2 really shows you the worldview of pretty much every traditional 
worldview, every traditional religion. Think of Hinduism and karma, which teaches that if you do something evil in this life, then there will be evil paid on you in the life to come, if not in this life. Um, traditional religions treat, um, teach that if you do good, then God will bless you. If you do bad, then God or the universe will curse you. And actually, even as Westerners who are secular, we basically believe that. It's amazing when I talk to my friends how often phrases, things like come out like the cream always rises to the top and, you know, things even out in the end and people get their comeuppance. You know, the same thing has existed for thousands of years. And basically, the view here, here is that the man is blind because something happened in his past or in a previous generation that shows that he is a sinner, a moral failure before a holy God. Notice Jesus' response, verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Now, this is a generally applicable response and a really important starting point for all suffering. Let me just make a, a side point. Suffering does not come on people because God is punishing this specific person for this specific sin in general. There are some specific examples where that does happen. Natural law, like if I jump off a high, um, a high um, ledge or something, then I might injure myself, and that's my own stupidity. You know, so there is something in that. But generally speaking, God does not go away saying, good people get blessing, bad people get smited. And therefore, if you see someone suffering, you say, well, they've probably done something. Jesus emphatically, verse 3, denies that. That's not what's going on. But notice also, he, doesn't, he does also affirm that God is in control, verse 3, but this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, it's not a universe of chaos. It's not just bad stuff happens and there's no rhyme or reason. No, he says there's a reason so that the glory of God might be seen, and he's going to do that. Now, in the context of what's going on at the time, but also in the context today, the miracle that he goes on to do is absolutely astounding. Let me just put that in context. I live just down the road here, um, about 200 yards from Moorfields Eye Hospital. Moorfields Eye Hospital, one of the foremost eye hospitals in the whole of Europe, if not the world. And um, in 2009, they were celebrated all over the medical journals and the newspapers because they were, did an operation with a person who had lost his sight 30 years earlier but hadn't been born blind, and they managed to partially restore his sight through careful operation and through the use of a bionic eye. Notice, he wasn't born blind. He got blind later. And they only partially restored his sight. Jesus, in verses 1 to 12, takes a man born blind... <laughs> and brings back his sight completely. Modern medicine can't even do this. This is astonishing. It was astonishing then, it's astonishing today. And also notice that the way things happen is so emphasized. So in verse six, we get the description of how it happens. After saying this, Jesus spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva. I know it's a bit gross, but bear with it. Put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told them, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. We get a repeated verse 11. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. And then we get again in verse 15. The Pharisees asked him how he'd received his sight. He put mud on my eyes. The man replied, and I washed and now I see. Three times it gets repeated. Generally speaking, if the authors of the scripture are wanting to repeat something three times, we should sit up and take notice. So let's notice the details. First of all, let's deal with the rather icky bit, the whole spitting mud episode. My wife is a doctor. I don't think this exactly adheres to best clinical practice in terms of cleanliness um, and antibacterial agents. Nonetheless, Jesus does it. Now, why do you think Jesus does this? We are left inferring, but I think we can legitimately infer a number of things. Think about the man. 
The man can't see. It's often said, isn't it, that when you have a particular sense taken away from you, your, your other senses are heightened. You rely on them more, and therefore your brain hones in on them. What senses has this man got? Well, he's got hearing, hasn't he? He's got touch. Do you see how very engaged with those faculties Jesus is? I mean, it is very involved, isn't it? Saliva, smearing on his eyes. You have to be up close and personal to do that. No distant detachment of a miracle done at 100 yards away. Jesus is right there, intimately involved with this man. This man who can't see, but Jesus is engaging with him on his level. This is the compassion and the humility of God who always connects with us on the levels that we can accept and we can engage with. And this man is getting the full sensory experience, which is going to be important later on when he meets Jesus, that he'll be able to connect that sensory experience with the person he now sees. So we'll come back to that later. Secondly, notice that Jesus doesn't just do the miracle and leave the man nothing to do, but he asks the man, or in fact commands the man to do something. He says to him, look down again at verse 6, sorry, verse 7, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed. Now, of course, Jesus has the power just to heal him like that. Why doesn't he? Well, it requires obedience on the man's part, doesn't it? In other words, Jesus does something remarkable. He is ultimately doing the miracle, but the man's got to do something to benefit from it. He has to go to the pool. How hard would that be for a blind person, by the way? It's not like he can follow the signs. Think of him stumbling along the road, asking for help, asking for people to navigate him to the pool. Think of everything that's going on in his mind. He's had this interaction with Jesus. He's not yet been healed. He still can't see. And as he grasps and clambers towards the pool, he reaches down. Think of getting and fumbling for the water, scooping it up, and then washing his eyes. Is it going to work? Is something going to change? And then the moment comes as the saliva and the mud comes off his eyes, and he blinks, and he starts to see. But Jesus isn't there. He's had to do all of that in obedience to Jesus, in faith that if he does that, the miracle will work. He could have said, no, heal me now, or I don't believe it's going to work. Perhaps after many false starts, he might have been prone to cynicism, <laughs> another charlatan. He had to obey Jesus. That's going to be significant. We'll see that later. So that's the sign, sight given to a man born blind. Let's get into the meaty part now with this debate that happens with the Pharisees of verse 13, the analysis, the blindness of those who should see. Look at verse 13. They, that is the people, brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Um, what that is saying is that this was supposed to be the Jewish day of rest when no work was to be done. And Jesus has already debated and interacted with the Pharisees on this, who thought that no healing should be done on the Sabbath. And Jesus is very clear that is not what Scripture teaches. That is a perversion, a distortion of God's good commandments, that the Sabbath was made for man. In other words, it was made as a blessing for people, not a time to withhold God's blessing. But they've distorted it as a means and mechanism of control. Therefore, verse 15, the Pharisees asked him how he'd received his sight. And the man tells them. Now, what's important to see is that the man tells them very plainly, and the Pharisees then don't seem to fully believe this. So, verse 18, they still did not believe that he'd been blind and had received his sight. So they sent for the man's parents. Now, under Jewish law, in a court of um, law, you had to have two testimonies to establish a fact. So the Pharisees get those two testimonies. They get the man, his own testimony about himself, and then his parents come in and they say, was he really born blind? You should know you're his parents. 
Now, his parents are pretty noncommittal, but do affirm that that had gone on. The reason they're pretty noncommittal is there in verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. So they affirm the facts, but they don't go as far as saying Jesus definitely did it because they know that the Pharisees are looking for a fight about Jesus. So they then call back the man. They've now had two testimonies. They've had it corroborated, but they call back the man again. And this is where the, interesting, where the interaction gets fascinating. Verse 24, a second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said, implying you haven't told it the first time, even though your parents have just corroborated your version of events. Verse 25, uh, sorry, they say, we know this man is a sinner. Well, that's their agenda. They want to establish that Jesus is a sinner. Verse 25, the man replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. All I know is that I was blind and now I see. They start to hurl insults at him and start to turn up the heat on him, to put pressure on him in the law court for him to recant his testimony. Now, what is fascinating is the logic of verse 30. They're trying to establish that Jesus couldn't possibly be from God, but look at the brilliance of this man's logic. Verse 30, the man answered, that is remarkable. You don't know where Jesus comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the godly who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. In other words, he says this. God doesn't listen to sinners. You know that. Only God could do this miracle. You know that. The miracle has been done. Therefore, Jesus must be from God or God. Flawless logic. I mean, you've got to grant him that, right? Isn't that flawless logic? I mean, who can do a miracle like this? Modern science can't. Only God can do it. God, affirmation of Scripture, doesn't listen to those people who reject him. He only listens to those who are from him. Therefore, if this miracle has happened, which it demonstrably has, as testified by two different witnesses, it must have been done by God. Since Jesus did it, he is either from God or he is, in fact, God. It's obvious. It's clear. It's crystal. Surely the Pharisees go, oh, brilliant, we've always wanted to believe in God, now we know. Is that what happens? Oh, the human heart is perverse. When faced with immovable logic, irrefutable truth, this is what the human heart does when it doesn't want to believe. Verse, 20, verse 34, to this they replied with just nasty insults, human anger. You were steeped in sin at birth, how dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. What's going on here? The analysis of what's going on here is that John is showing us where real spiritual blindness comes from. Why do some believe and some don't? Not because of lack of information, as I often say, but because of lack of inclination. The Pharisees are presented, I would put it to you, with irrefutable evidence that on their own terms they have to accept. Two independent witnesses, both corroborating. Flawless logic based on scriptures themselves that they would accept leads to one conclusion. Jesus did this. He is from God or he is God. And what do they do when faced with that information? They get nasty. Because here's the bottom line about the human heart. We are not as rational as we think. We are driven by our desires. I often use this illustration, but Archbishop Cranmer, the um, Anglican theologian, has been summarized as saying this, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the intellect justifies. That's how the human beings work. What the heart loves, the will chooses, the intellect justifies. Notice the order, heart, will, intellect. Not intellect, will, heart, which is what we often think. We are 
driven by our desires, not by our rationality primarily. Have you ever tried to persuade someone that they're in a relationship or a friendship that's fundamentally bad for them? How did that go for you? Hard, isn't it? Or why is it that we so often do things about against our own interest? You're on a diet. You're committed to the diet. And you go and eat cake in the middle of the diet. Why do you do that? Is it because you don't know that that's bad for you? You haven't read the blogs or you haven't read the dietary book? Or you're not really committed to it? No, you're committed to it. You just can't control your own desires. You decide you're going to train for the marathon and you're going to commit to the schedule. How many people actually go through the whole schedule? I mean, I watched my wife do it. It was remarkable. She finished the marathon. I mean, she did so little training. She just thought she would turn up on the, on the start line and off she go, which she actually did, to be fair. But either way, she should have done more training. But we know what's in our best interest. We just don't follow it. And it's not just that, isn't it? Plowing into an argument when everything inside you says, leave well alone, and then you regret it later. Biting off someone's head in the office when you've had a bad night's sleep, when you know it's going to be payback later. You don't do it because you think it's a good course of action. You can't control yourselves. It's your desires. They override your rational faculties. And that's what's going on with the Pharisees. The Pharisees don't believe in Jesus because the bottom line is they don't want to believe in Jesus. They might say they like the idea of God. Yes, they do. The idea of God. They don't like the reality of God because God is a threat to them. They have their own system of power. They're in control, thank you very much. They know the will of God. They are the arbiters of the will of God. And the use of the arbitration of the will of God gets them significant social status. So what would happen if when God actually turns up on the scene and says, that's not how I want things run around here? He's a threat. And dare I say, what is true of the Pharisees is true of people today. I became a Christian at age 22, and I didn't become a Christian because I wanted to become a Christian. <laughs> I didn't want to become a Christian. Everything about Christianity was a threat to me. It was a threat to the way I was living my life and my lifestyle choices. It was a threat to my view of myself and my autonomy. I wanted to govern my own life. Um, it was a threat to my relationships that I had and things that I knew that were unhealthy and that needed to change. It was a profound threat. I resisted it with every fiber of my being to start off with. What the heart wants, the will chooses, the intellect justifies. Why are people blind? They're blind not through lack of information, they're blind through lack of inclination. And until we reckon with this, we won't really understand the human condition. Of course it's important to present the reasons for faith, but don't be naive about yourself or other people. Presenting the reasons for faith in and of themselves will not persuade anyone, because the problem is in the heart. So let's then look at the solution, the miracle of faith. How does this man come to believe? Well, a miracle happens. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Notice the emphasis on sight. Jesus is the one who gives him sight, and he says, you have now seen him. We see Jesus, we come to belief. How does that happen? Well, it happens through a miracle. And the key moment is when the man believed, and we need to flick back to see this. Look at verse 7, chapter 9, verse 7. When did the man come to believe? Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sense. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. He sees when he obeys Jesus. So this is the moment. He obeys Jesus as Jesus does a miracle in his heart, and that is when he believes. So what is the requirement for belief? Jesus needs to do a miracle 
but that does not leave us powerless. As Jesus does that miracle, we also need to hear his call to believe. And ultimately, it's when the man was washed that he believed, because we need to be washed clean of our false desires that lead us away from God, and that's what Jesus has come to do. He's come to forgive us, to cleanse us, to reorientate our desires, and to move us back to God. And as Jesus does that, then our eyes are opened. As the words of the famous hymn go, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this glorious miracle. And thank you that this miracle that happened in this man's life is the same miracle that needs to happen in all of our lives, that we need to have our eyes opened, that that having our eyes opened doesn't remove any responsibility. We also need to strive to believe and to obey in the Lord Jesus Christ and to follow just as this man did. Please open our blind eyes to the truth and open those of our colleagues and friends around us, we ask, so that they might have life in Jesus' name. We ask it for his name's sake. Amen.